Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 48, Pope Hilarious. Is he, though? No. No, he's not. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> I'm burying the lead here, but no. No, he's not. And he has a really big act to follow, because he is following Pope Leo. Yeah, we've, we spent two episodes on Leo and Leo's things. Yeah, like three hours on this last pope, and then this pope rocks up with a name like Hilarious and does not deliver. Big old cocktees. Oh, totally, totally. But we'll get there. We need to start with his early life, though, because, oh, you'll see why. So Hilarious was born in Sardinia. And we're going to figure out exactly what kind of man would name his child Hilarious. Is it Danny DeVito in a time machine? Because that's what I'm imagining. I feel like this is a name that Danny DeVito would take because his father's name is Crispy Myanus. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not even joking. Okay, if I was being fair, I might have said Crispy Myanus, but I mean... When I told you I had found a name to rival Poopy Anus, Crispy My Anus is this man. <laughs> Danny DeVito has found a time machine, and he's gone back in time. He's already an old Italian man. He's going to fit right in. <laughs> yep. And so he's going to call himself Crispy My Anus, and then when his child comes out, he's going to say, Hilarious! Just as a point of reference here, because I, we may get comments about this, some other sources say that Hilarious's father's name was Crispinus, but... Crispinus is not better. Or Crispinus, you know, but it's less amusing than Crispy Myanus, so I gave you all that I could for that one. And I hope you enjoyed that, because this Pope is a massive buzzkill, and <laughs> that's all we have for laughs. That aside... Hilarious joined the church in his early life, and he made a reputation for himself as an energetic and competent clergyman who quickly rose through the ranks and was serving as a deacon in the papacy of Leo. And we actually have some stories about his pre-papal life because he was actually out doing things for the Pope. He actually entered our story last week, but because I wasn't prepared to spoil his name... I didn't identify him as anything other than a deacon. So he was one of the papal legates who was hastily sent to the Second Council of Ephesus in 449, a.k.a. the Robber Synod. And then quickly left because they didn't want to get kicked to death. Exactly. He's one of those guys. So when the council was called deliberately so far away on very short notice so no Western bishops could attend... Pope Leo had sent those four papal legates, including Bishop Julian of Petoliae, Hilarius, and two other deacons. And then one of those unnamed deacons had died on the way to the council, so there were only three Western clergymen at the total of the whole council. And that wasn't a good situation for them to be in, because it meant that their presence was pretty critical, but also that they were extremely vulnerable of being... Kicked to death, so... Stomped. So we've already talked about how this council went down twice, so we're not going to do it again. But we're going to look a little at what the role of the legates was and what they were there to represent. 
even if they were wildly unsuccessful. So, first and foremost, they were there to have the Tome of Leo read out to the council as the Declaration of Christological Orthodoxy. And thereby having read the letter, they were to support Flavian's deposition of Eutyches as being the correct move. But we know that they were entirely suppressed, and Dioscorus of Alexandria, who was presiding over the council, refused for them to be allowed to speak in any capacity. Despite this, they hotly opposed the council's decision to reinstate Eutyches and have Flavian deposed, but that didn't stop a mob from seizing on Flavian and beating him to death, basically. And Hilarius was the legate to utter that significant contradictor word that annulled the council in Leo's name before they ran away and tried not to get kicked to death. And we know this was difficult for them, too, because it became clear that Dioscorus had no intention on letting the legates get to Rome or to Constantinople. We have a letter from Hilarius to the Empress of the East, which apologizes to her for not being able to deliver to her a letter that was written to her by Pope Leo that Hilarius was carrying and was intending to go and deliver to her after the conclusion of the Synod, because Dioscorus had made it impossible for him to get to her, and he really, really, really had to get back to inform Leo of what had just happened before he got caught. In this letter, Hilarius describes how he had to hide to avoid the supporters of Eutyches and Dioscorus, and so was forced to hide in the chapel of St. John the Evangelist, and then take obscure back roads back to Rome. So it took him a very long time. This letter from Hilarius ended up preserved in the Corpus of Writings by Leo and is generally called Leo Epistle 46, even though it's not his epistle. But every source that has all of the epistles of Leo online just has this one quoted as, From Hilary, then deacon, afterwards bishop of Rome, to Pulcheria Augusta, describing his ill treatment as Leo's delegate by Dioscorus. So it doesn't actually give us the text of the letter so that I could quote it for you. It just says, in this letter, he complains about his ill treatment. Maybe they just didn't want to preserve, like, the legacy of complaints. It's available in the Latin versions. It's just that nobody bothered to translate it into English and put it online, so... Don't translate complaints, I guess. Yeah, and, and translating Latin is its whole own barrel of monkeys. And generally, if I can get an English source, I will stick with the English source, because I don't actually speak Latin... And because I speak a little bit of Italian, it makes it more complicated sometimes. They're so close, but not the same. Not helpful. When Hilarius made it back to Rome safely and was able to inform the Pope of what had happened, he gets elevated to the position of archdeacon in return for his harrowing service. So Hilarius had definitely earned a respectable reputation by this point, and so when Leo dies on November 10th of 461, Hilarius was elected to be his successor within the week. Even though he's only a deacon? Archdeacon? They would generally elect from the deacons, because at this point, if you were the bishop, you were already the bishop of a city. And so in order to be the pope, you can't have been a bishop anywhere else, because then that... Well, we'll see exactly why you can't do that <laughs> a little bit later in this episode. 
So his election took place on the 17th, and he was consecrated Pope on the 19th of November of 461. And he clearly wanted to pick up where Leo left off with the same level of zeal and care of the whole church. So he pursued a policy of strengthening the concept of papal supremacy, because of course. I mean, you gotta. Especially if you're following Leo, who was all about that. So this mostly manifests with him with his interventions in Gaul and in Hispania. So first, we're going to look at the situation in Narbonne in Gaul. So in Gaul, in Narbonne, a former archdeacon called Hermes had assumed the bishopric of Narbonne without having been formally confirmed by the previous pope. So according to the many regulations of papal supremacy that had been implemented by Pope Leo, this was considered a technically illegal assumption of the role much to the concern of the other bishops in the area. They did not want to be associated with this illegal assumption of a bishopric. So the bishops of Gaul collectively sent two prelates to Rome to meet with the Pope and inform them of their concerns, along with some other matters, because, you know, since we're here, let's do all of these problems at once. So Hilarius, who is very pleased that they've done the right thing in bringing the important matters to him, consents to hold a synod in Rome on November 19th of 462, which happens to be the anniversary of his consecration. From this synod, Hilarius decreed through an encyclical to all the Gallic provincial bishops that Hermes would be permitted to maintain the bishopric in Narbonne through what was now an official papal confirmation. This is a symbolically significant step for him to take, because this reinforced the concept that consecration of a bishop without the assent of a pope was an illegal consecration, and therefore the pope had the right to a veto. Even though he chose not to use it here and start the nomination process all over again for Narbonne, as he probably should have done, he confirmed the choice that was already made and implied that he could veto if he wanted to, particularly if he was not consulted first. You know what's hilarious? What's that? I could veto you if I felt like it. Oh, that's so hilarious. Everyone has to laugh because he's the Pope. Uh Uh-huh. The encyclical also addressed several disciplinary issues that Hilarius wanted to see tightened up in Gaul. So, yeah, this is the kind of man he is. He just wants to tighten everybody up by their bootstraps and make everything just so. That's not very funny. No, he has a a great nickname that we're going to get to later that is so fitting. So he ordered that Gaul would be responsible for an annual synod presided by the Bishop of Arles to handle all provincial ecclesiastical concerns, but reiterated that all of the important concerns were still required to be submitted to Rome for consultation. He also tightened up on the regulations of clerical movement so that no bishop would be permitted to leave their diocese without a written letter of permission from their metropolitan. However, there was still a caveat that the bishop had the right to appeal to the bishop of Arles if the metropolitan was being unjust. But as a side note, even though the pope was giving the bishop of Arles the position of being the primary appeal, he also saw that perhaps the bishop of Arles now, a man called Leontius, was maybe doing what some of the previous Bishop of Arles had done in the past, which is claiming jurisdiction over parishes that he might not have had a right to. 
So he allows the Gallic bishops to investigate these claims and determine the legitimacy of Leontius and his claims of jurisdiction over certain territories before they could be declared legitimate. So he is just like going through and checking everything to make sure it's exactly by the letter, because if it's not, we're going to work it out. In this encyclical, Hilarius also prohibited the sale of church property until the proposed sale had been evaluated by a synod, which is an interesting little tidbit because it doesn't give us a whole lot to go on, but it suggests that this might have been a problem at Gaul in the time. We're not entirely sure why the Gallic clergy would be selling off church property, but considering the state of the empire, it might have been a really expedient way to get funds that were now kind of getting out of hand. So, you know, he just says, no, you actually can't sell any church property until we sit down and have a meeting about it. So, so far, really exciting stuff. No. There was also another situation in Gaul that caught Hilarius's attention. And this time it was in Vienne, which was another major metropolitan bishopric like Arles, which has constantly come up against Arles to challenge its authority. And this is kind of, in a way, why it's coming up into our story now. In 463, the bishop of Vienne, Memertus, had consecrated a new bishop for the Diocese of Die. But Die was not within the ecclesiastical jurisdiction of Vienne. That territory had been confirmed to the bishopric of Arles, quite clearly and recently, in a decree by Pope Leo, so... It's not as if they could just feign ignorance that, oh no, this doesn't belong to you. It has come from Pope Leo. So Hilarius finds out about this overstepping of jurisdictional boundaries, and he writes to Leontius, instructing him to convene a synod to review the issues. So here we see him, he's willing to debate some territory of Arles and staunchly defend others. So he's not very consistent. No, I don't like him already. He lost me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. Great name, just bad at everything else. We'll start thinking about that for patron sainthood. The acts of the synod we know were recorded by a bishop called Antonius, who brought the information directly to the Pope in Rome, but the actual acts that he recorded and actually wrote down have been lost, so we only know the outcomes of the council due to an edict that Hilarius then passed on February 25th of 464, outlining the decisions of the council and his decree of confirmation. In this edict, Hilarius declares that for his overstep, both the bishop Mamertus of Vienne and the bishop of Die that he consecrated should be deposed, but that the pope preferred to show clemency. So instead, he chose a bishop called Varanus to act as a papal legate to Mamertus to bring him this decision, remind him of the judgments of Leo that delineate jurisdictional boundaries, and then warn him that if he ordains clerical positions outside of his purview again, then he'd lose everything. Not now. No, I'm not going to deal with you now. You should be deposed, but I'm not going to. But if you do it again, then I will. And then he sent this out as a warning to all bishops not to overstep their boundaries, because now they had a precedent to look at. At this point, choosing not to undo the mistakes for a second time just starts to feel like saving face for Pope Hilarius. I get the impression that he wanted to, like, push for papal primacy, like, 
I have the power to show you clemency and forgiveness, but he couldn't be arsed to actually do anything about it. It's just, like, easier to confirm the already selected candidate and make it look like that's what you intended. So now we can move on to Hispania. Yes, that was all Gaul. That was all Gaul. And we haven't really talked a lot about Spain in our podcast yet, because not only have they been on the periphery for most of the action that we've been dealing with, but as far as the church goes, they have also mainly remained outside of the papal purview because they mostly operate on their own. But this starts to come to at least a temporary end under Hilarius because of what goes down with Silvanius, the Bishop of Calahorra. Silvanius started to worry the other Spanish bishops when he started consecrating bishops in a similar fashion to what had happened with Mamertus in Vienne. In the first letter that the Pope receives about the bishop's concerns from Ascanius, the Bishop of Tarragona, it's clear that in the past, Silvanius had consecrated a bishop for an area that didn't really have any need for a bishop and hadn't even requested a bishop. He just kind of made one and went, you're going to be the bishop of this area now. Surprise! And the bishops of Spain had let it slide at the time, accepting the bishop and just kind of moving on. But now, he was doing it again. And this time, he was consecrating bishops for a diocese that were out of his jurisdiction. Just like Mavrishes of Vienne had. But what's more, the bishop, who would become the bishop of Saragossa, had refused his consecration. And Sylvanius just went ahead and did it anyways and by violence, against the man's will. So he's like, I don't want to be Bishop of Saragossa, and they're like, too bad, and threatens him with violence to consecrate him. Wow. So yeah, the rest of the bishops in Spain were a little bit concerned about this. So they had written to the Pope in the hopes that he would intervene and put an end to the behavior before it got out of hand, which is, you know, probably too late. But before Hilarius was actually able to send out his decision in a reply to the bishops, he gets another letter from them to, one, express surprise that the Pope hasn't answered them yet, but also to discuss another issue. This one being the issue of the recently deceased Bishop of Barcelona, Nundinarius. Now, before Nundinarius had died, he had publicly acknowledged that a deacon in his service called Irenaeus was to be his successor, and bequeathed him a great deal of property. And this wasn't so much a problem. It seems that Irenaeus was a very popular choice in the diocese, and Nundinarius had been well-respected by his fellow bishops, so they had assented to the choice of Irenaeus as his replacement in a synod that was held in Tarragona. Now all they were doing was writing to the Pope to get him to confirm their decision to make him the new Bishop of Barcelona. But there's a bit of a hitch with all of this. While Nundinarius was alive, he had made Irenaeus the Bishop of another diocese, one that was smaller and not quite as rich as Barcelona. We can assume that he did this because he wanted to elevate someone who was close with him, with the assumption that maybe it would be easy to translate him from the smaller bishopric to the bigger one when the time came. But as we've seen with all of these recent church decrees, the church ain't about that life. So that's not a thing you can do anymore. So when Hilarius receives the second letter, he decides it would be better to just call a synod and get both issues dealt with at once. Of course, due process. 
The Synod was held in Rome on November 19th of 465. Everything happens on November 19th for him. Just noticing that now. In the Basilica Santa Maria Maggiore with 48 bishops. And in this synod, although dealing with a relatively small issue in the context of the empire, is pretty significant because this is the oldest synod in all of church history whose actual original Roman records survive in full. Oh, yeah. So we have a total and complete contemporary account of this synod. That is so cool. The final word on the Irenaeus issue was decreed that no bishop should be consecrated without the knowledge of the Spanish Metropolitan, and that no one should leave his church to go to another. Therefore, the bishops had made the wrong choice in confirming Irenaeus to Barcelona. And so, Irenaeus would be required to abdicate from the See of Barcelona and return to his originally consecrated diocese so that a new candidate could be consecrated for Barcelona. If he refused, then he would be demoted and not permitted to be a bishop at all. All right, so leave or get demoted. Yeah, you are already a bishop, and too bad it's not of the place you want to be a bishop of, or that the people want you to be a bishop of. You're consecrated over there. Go back over there, or none at all. Furthermore, a bishopric was not, and must never be considered as a hereditary right, and no bishop would be permitted to name their own successor unless they petitioned permission from Rome first. That's an interesting one. We're going to come back to that in about 10 episodes. Oh, yeah, because you're way ahead now. Yes. But, like, Leo made a lot of rules, and these are just tacking on to the rules. And more than that, sort of just reinforcing the rules that were there. Now, on the issue of Silvanius and his ordination happy boundary crossing, it was decreed that any bishops ordained by Silvanius irregularly would be deposed, as was Silvanius. Yeah, that's fair. However, the Pope once again chose clemency as the answer and therefore chose to recognize both the irregular ordination candidates and Silvanius as long as no more of them happened. Don't do it again. Yeah. So in the end, it, nothing really came out of it, but the Pope just wanted to say, I have the power to do this, but I'm not gonna. Isn't this like a, like a True Blood or an Anne Rice novel plot? Like, I see that you made a lot of vampires. Stop that. Pretty much exactly like that, yeah. And maybe at the end he'll be presented with the true gift. <laughs> Those were the days. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so nothing much had come from that. Except for the whole Irenaeus thing. Stop making vampires. Stop making vampires in other people's territory, nonetheless. That's not how you vampire. This could take on a whole new appeal if Hilarious was a vampire. It's true. He would be more interesting if he were a vampire. He would totally fit in with the three vampires on what we do in the shadows. No, he'd be like... The one they don't, like, he'll come in the room and they'll be like, ah, he's here again. He's the energy vampire. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That guy. Watch that show if you're not watching it. Oh my god, it's it's really good. good. Oh my god, the energy vampire, though. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, that's this guy. So, once this had all been done, Hilarius found himself preoccupied with his ongoing relationship in 467 with the new emperor in the West, Anthemius. 
Now, according to a later source and a later pope, Gelasius, Anthemius had a court favorite called Philotheus, which is ironic because his name means lover of God. And he was known to be an Arian, and more specifically, a Macedonian Arian. And if you don't remember, Macedonianism was that the Holy Spirit was created by the Son and therefore was subordinate to the Son and the Father, and the Son was subordinate to the Father because he was created by the Father. Yeah. So. A hierarchy. Exactly. And apparently, Philotheus was able to convince Anthemius that what Rome really needed was an edict that would grant toleration across the board for schismatic Christian sects and the freedom to hold their religious gatherings in the city of Rome. This is what the emperor has been convinced Rome really needs. So when Pope Hilarius finds out about this, he is having none of it. Like, this would be a clap-on-syllables moment. As historian Thomas Hodgkin in his book Italy and Her Invaders wrote, quote, The aged Hilarius, who was within a few months of his end, thundered so loud and clear of voice in St. Peter's against the proposed act of toleration that the emperor was obliged to relinquish his design and pledge himself by a solemn oath to the pontiff never to resume it. He just, like, slams open the door and yells, No! Pretty much exactly that. <laughs> yes. This is a quote from the Gelasian letter to the bishops of Dardania, but Hodgkin is the only person who has put an English translation online, so that's why I'm crediting his book and not just, This is Pope Gelasius. So, thank you, historian Thomas Hodgkin. So, yeah, the story is that he literally confronts the emperor at the grave of St. Peter and presses him into a promise that no schismatic assemblies would be allowed in Rome and that an edict of toleration wouldn't pass. So for once, he's done something, and he's done something rather forcefully, so cool. Now, around the same time as he was pushing the emperor away from heretical toleration— Pope Hilarius also did something that I only ever saw mentioned in the sources as like an offhand comment, but should probably get a little bit more attention. Apparently, according to these brief comments, Hilarius was responsible at the time for a complete revamping slash major change to the liturgy of mass. Oh. The reasons given for this were to modernize the church liturgy to simplify and make it easier to understand, and to appeal to new converts and return schismatic or heretics. This is, like, crazy progressive, seeing as we're just exiting the early church period. Unfortunately, we don't know exactly what these major reforms to the Mass actually looked like, so we don't know which ones he's responsible for, but considering that's only mentioned offhandedly, it seems fairly important. And just like all the other popes of his era, Hilarius made sure to leave his mark on the city of Rome by erecting several churches, buildings, and sacred structures. So, he founded a chapel of the Holy Cross and two oratories in the baptistery of the Lateran Basilica. One was in the honor of St. John the Evangelist, who he had a personal connection with after having hidden in his chapel after the Robber Synod and credited for his safe escape, and one for John the Baptist. This is also important, by the way, because apparently up until this moment, it wasn't entirely clear 
which St. John, the St. John in the Lateran of the Lateran Basilica, actually meant. So this church was just called St. John in the Lateran, but nobody knew which St. John that was supposed to refer to. So it's Hilarius's new edition of these oratories in the baptistery that solidifies and makes it official which Johns the basilica was dedicated to. And the answer is both. So now even today, the full name of the Basilica is the Cathedral of the Most Holy Savior and of Saints John the Baptist and the Evangelist in the Lateran. So now everybody knows exactly which St. John they mean. Both. All St. Johns. He also founded two public bathhouses and at least one library near the Basilica of St. Lawrence outside the walls. And that's interesting, because it seems to be a first for a pope. We have not had a pope build a library yet. So Hilarius died on February 28th or 29th of 468. Oh, on a leap day. Well, I went back to see if I could find out if 468 was a leap year to try and narrow it down. But if you go to any, like, calculated lists of leap years, they really only go back to 800 which makes sense with all the discombobulations that happened with adopting the Gregorian calendar. But it's either the 28th or the 29th of February. I kind of like the idea of him being a leap year pope, but... We only have to celebrate him every so often. Every four years he gets a feast day. Oh, that would be so sad. He deserves it. (laughs) He was buried at the Church of St. Lawrence outside the walls. And there are no accounts of him being moved at any point, and he's still listed on their site as a notable burial, so he's still there. You can go and visit the remains of Pope Hilarius. Did they put him there because Lawrence is the jokey martyr, and they thought maybe that that would be a good joke, but but Hilarius wasn't funny at all? That is, yeah, that's exactly what happened. A misnomer? This is historical fact now. (laughs) We have decided that that's exactly why they put him there. So deal with it. You know who likes jokes? St. Lawrence. (laughs) You know who doesn't like jokes? Pope Hilarious. It's true. So now we need to rate him. And this is where we get to make fun of him. So excellent. Papatum infallium. So he declared on many occasions that he had the primacy of the apostolic see. And at as Pope, that his decisions were supreme, and then he practically used that to make no real decisions. I'm in charge. I don't know how Vienne, Narbonne, or Hispania could work in his favor. None of those are good examples of good things being done. Sometimes I get really grumpy and will sit in, like, a chair and, like, cross my (laughs) arms and cross my legs and just be like, no, I'm in charge. I'm the mother, and, like, just not let anyone do anything, and his whole papacy is that. I have such a perfect visual of you doing that, too, and I could hear your mom voice in my head. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. that's it. that is his whole papacy. Um, In the bad side, here is his nickname. He is known as the holiest of buzzkills. Yes. He loved a good encyclical about discipline. The the only really good thing here, like, there are two, perhaps. The one that we can really credit him for here is he resisted the emperor's potential toleration of, like, schismatics and Arians, and this is a fight for orthodoxy, and he actually has an impression on the emperor. So that is 
Good. And then if we look at this idea of a major reform and modernization of the liturgy of mass, that could be pretty big if we were able to determine exactly what those changes were. So he's not going to get a zero here. No, but I don't want to go over like a four, though. You're going to give him a four? Yeah, that's... No, like like maybe a four total. Okay. So you want to give him like a two yeah. and I'll give him a two? Yeah, because I was thinking like a two for the... Just for the orthodoxy. And yeah, four seems fair. Papatum and Valium, he gets a four. Fructus prohibitum. So in this category, I kind of almost want to give him a point for being a bit lazy, but... We made a mistake. We should give him an eight, a zero, a zero, and an eight. To spell boobs? <laughs> yeah. He would not approve of that at all. But anyways, I, I kind of wanted to give him a point here for being lazy. And then I started to think about it, and I thought, maybe he was totally scarred by his experience as a legate. Oh, uh, yeah, not getting stomped. Yeah, so maybe he just got to be Pope and he's like, I am not rocking the boat again. Everyone's feet are a potential weapon. Everyone's got two. That's why he sits there with his arms and legs crossed <laughs> so that if you get close, he can just whap one of those <laughs> legs out at you. Yeah, Um. so I can't give him a point in this category. I wanted to, but yeah, I don't know. Do you want to give him something? Uh, no. You're thinking about it hard. Uh, no, none of that. Okay, he gets a zero. Not doing as well as his predecessor, let me say. Leo is a large act to follow. He's got that big dick energy. Well, somebody on her on her Twitter feed said big cat energy, and I was like, yep, that's probably the nice way of saying that. Cool. Seculari impactum. We could make an argument that because of his interventions in Gaul and Spain, he made a stronger ecclesiastical government for these provinces, and considering their current civil governments were a mess, this might have brought more order to the day-to-day citizen-ish? It's a leap. Just give him a point already. A token point. Yeah. Okay. One for you. Fossium Sanctus. This is a category where he, based on who he is as a person, may redeem himself a little bit. Let's see how hilarious he looks. Oh no, this is a man who looks like the holiest of buzzkills in every single picture that I'm going to show you. So here's the first one, our traditional rating photo. There wow. you go. That is a pissed off man. <laughs> crossing his arms and his legs and he's mad at you. I'm going to just show you all of these because they all have the same theme and we're going to definitely be rating him on his expressions more than his actual features. Look how cute his hair is. He has some good curly hair. Are you ready for some more? Yeah, let's go. We're going to get into some actual medieval like woodcut style images here, but... The theme here is definitely buzzkill, buzzkill, buzzkill. So there's one, there's the other, and there's our traditional bad artist, and he looks miserable in all of them. Yeah, most of them he's side-eyeing, like, what the f*** he want? Yeah. Like, he's just there to ruin the party. Yep. He is the party pooper. He has a pooped the party. <laughs> His poops at parties. Hilarious poops at parties. He poops at the parties and the people, they know this? He does. He is the party pooper. 
on that note, what do you think his total buzzkill face is worth? Oh, it's worth something good. It's gotta be. I want to give him a nine. It's really a good face. Especially the first one. He looks so annoyed about everything. Uh, you're going to give him a nine. I'm going to give him an eight. And so he's going to get a 4.25 in this category. That's excellent. Tempest Pontificus. November 19th, 461 to February 29th. I'm going to give him that extra day, 468. Total of six years, which is a score of 1.5. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! His feast day is either November 17th or February 28th. We are giving him the February 28th day. No, it's February 29th. February 29th, okay. I demand he's on the 29th. I will I will put him on the 29th. He can only buzz kill us every four years. Fantastic. He's not a patron saint, but I think he needs to be the patron saint of party poopers. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that just has to happen. This is a consensus moment. Absolutely the patron saint of party poopers. He couldn't be anything else. Nope, it would be a disservice to Pope Hilarious. Nobody's going to understand that. I'll be like, oh, Pope Hilarious is the patron saint of party poopers. Or should I write people who poop at parties? No. Party poopers will do. We're going to be at a party and be like, you're gonna, you're being a real Pope Hilarious right now. <laughs> that would be the best use of him in modern day conversation. I would love it. Yes. Or if you know somebody who's just a general party pooper, just get them an image of Pope Hilarious and be like, I thought of you. Put this on your desk. He'll look over you. He'll keep you safe. <laughs> so you can poop more parties. Exactly. His party is going to be pooped when we reveal his total score, by the way, which is an 11.75. That is not high. No, it's not. His predecessor did 51, and he is in 38th place, and he is Pope 48. What did we learn? What did we learn? Not to be a buzzkill. So, are we going to poop on his party and not give him a papal bull? Absolutely. Okay. I don't think he's worthy of it either. His party is sufficiently pooped. And that's all we can say about him. But that's not all we can say about this episode, because it's time for two Pope Watches. Two of them? Stuff must have happened while I was on vacation. Yeah, and we haven't recorded in so long, so these Pope Watches by now are actually old. They're old news? Yeah, like June 17th was when I last updated these Pope Watches. Turns out when you record so that you can then go on vacation for eight days, things add up. Yes, they do. So we're catching up now. So, first Pope Watch. And this was one we were asked to cover... And definitely is deserving of coverage. And I looked back into this and there is no development on the story because this is just a very short little blip that came out. The week of June 10th, a report was released that revealed that since 2011, the Catholic Church in the Northeastern United States has spent up to $10.6 million to counter proposed legislation that would have assisted victims of clerical abuse. The data was collected based on public filings of Connecticut, Maine, Massachusetts. Oh, I said that right this time. I can never say that statement. Can you not say Massachusetts? It always comes out something closer to massive two, but 
I got it right this time. New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island. In New York alone, almost $3 million was spent lobbying against the Child Victims Act, which increases the time limit that victims can sue by from age 23 to age 55. So... I feel like someone needs to be fired. Yeah, like, they spent $3 million fighting that thing, and it was still signed into law in February of this year, by the way. In Pennsylvania, over $5 million was spent lobbying to maintain the current statute of limitations restrictions on criminal and civil cases against sexual abuse. Now, at the time that I looked into this, and as of today, no current statement has been made by any branch of the church on these findings yet, and there aren't a lot of credible sources reporting on it because it's a lot of, like, very hatefully written things. So it is a thing that has been released, and we will definitely be looking into this more. If you want to look at the report itself, it is called Church Influencing State, How the Catholic Church Spent Millions Against Survivors of Clergy Abuse, and it was reported first on CBS News. Gotta fire all those people. I mean, there's a paper trail. Just go fire them. We've got the money. We know who's involved, so. Not a secret. Go get them. It's super f***ed up. It is. It's really messed up. Now, Pope Watch 2 is in a completely different genre, sort of. As of June 17th, the Vatican is considering some restricted ordination of married men, specifically in the Amazon like Bolivia, Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, Guyana, Peru, Venezuela, and Suriname, due to an extreme shortage of Catholic priests and a massively ethnically diverse population that has like 400 indigenous tribes, 240 distinct languages just within that region. So they need to find some people who can actually do church activity and perform certain sacraments, and there's not a lot of opportunity for unmarried priests. The men who would be considered for the role would be men that are referred to as viri probati, men of proven virtue, and likely wouldn't end up being a full ordination, but some sort of partial ordination. Some sort of not a deacon, but not a priest in betweener. Yeah, exactly. And it would not impact the church policy on mandatory celibacy for priests either. That's why it would only be like a partial ordination with like limited duties. The statement that went for this announcement of the Synod said, quote, While affirming that celibacy is a gift for the Church, it is asked that for the most remote areas of the region, the possibility of priestly ordination of elders, preferably indigenous, respected and accepted by their community, even those who have already have stable and consolidated families, be studied in order to ensure the sacraments to accompany and sustain Christian life. So... A debate and a potential decision on this issue will be made in the Vatican in an October Synod, which will also consider the potential for church roles for women in the region, although we know that Francis has no interest in reopening the discussion on female priests that John Paul II closed, so this is just a tidbit, and the real news, whether it comes out in October, remains to be seen. Also, didn't uh, didn't the Pope Emeritus not have a stroke? He did not have a stroke. It was it was definitely out there in the news for a couple minutes that he had had a stroke, and yeah, none of that was true. the The reports were denied fairly early on and clarified by some of the sources I followed. So I didn't even start writing a Pope Watch about that. Not a stroke. Yes, not a stroke. 
But then we have thank yous to make. And the first is for Patreon to absolve his temporal punishments. We thank Carl Morris. Ego te absolvo. Don't have a stroke. <laughs> don't have, yeah, that's what we should wish for all of our patrons. <laughs> yes, don't have a stroke. Excellent. We also need to thank the Spellcast podcast for recommending us and the Roman and Byzantine history group on Facebook. And the Why Is That podcast for putting us on an article of their favorite ongoing history podcasts. There were 42 podcasts mentioned, and we got to be number 14. Woo-hoo! Yeah. Thank you so much for putting us on your list. That was awesome. We are very honored. The shows on there are great. We I listened to a whole bunch of them, and, and so to be in such esteemed company was excellent. And to be number 14 was like, woo, exciting. Somebody likes us that much. Yeah. And we also need to thank Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium, as always. And with that, we thank all of you, and we can say thank you, and goodbye. Goodbye. Pope Hilarius shall now deliver this solemn and serious sermon. Now learn the parable from the fig tree, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So, you too, when you see all these thongs, <laughs> recognize that he is here. Right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these thongs stop sniggering at the bark. Take place. If you now open your song books to page 42, we will sing from hymn 23. O oh God, how solemn are we. Solemn are we, oh God, how solemn are we, oh how God, great how solemn are we, and how mighty is oh God, his solemn is everlasting. Time and thongs. For thongs.